Welcome to Archaeoed, a podcast about ancient civilizations in the Americas. I'm your host, Dr. Ed Barnard, and I've been an archaeologist all around the Americas for over 20 years now. In this podcast, I'm going to talk about ancient civilizations that I find interesting. Sometimes it'll be overviews, sometimes it'll be very in-depth information, basically anything I feel like talking about, because this is my podcast and I'm just having fun with it. I hope you enjoy it too. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and let's get started. Season 3, Episode 2, The Moche. If you listened to my last episode, you know that I promised this one as an extension of my Fang Deity theories. In this episode, I'll explain how sex, drugs, music, decapitation, and puppies are all tied into how the Moche worshipped their primary deity, the one I call the Fang Deity. But first, let me explain some of the baseline facts about the Moche, set them in time and space. The Moche were a civilization who thrived on the north coast of Peru from roughly 100 to 750 CE. Their territory was vast, extending from just south of the modern city of Trujillo to the Lambayeque Valley, about a dozen individual river valleys feeding into the Pacific. Personally, I think we can say it was even larger, extending to what's called the Lima culture in the valleys running through modern-day Lima, and north into the cultures we call Vicus and Piura. Those cultures seem pretty darn moche to me, but maybe that's just me being a lumper. Any way you look at it, moche civilization covered hundreds of miles of the coastal valleys. They didn't just pop up out of nowhere. They were an evolution, an amalgam of previous cultures like Kupasnike, Supe, Sechin, and others. But the scale of their settlements, their agricultural irrigation systems, and their ceremonial centers were greater than anything the North Coast had ever seen. In fact, it was arguably the most populous civilization that ever lived along the North Coast, even including today. They built pyramids of adobe bricks. Now, people on the coast had been building pyramids for over a thousand years at this point. But the Moche built really big ones. The pyramid called the Huaca del Sol was the largest structure ever built in pre-Columbian South America. Not even the Inca built something larger. Originally, the Huaca del Sol stood 50 meters tall and at its base, it was 340 by 160 meters. The Spanish diverted the Moche River to cut into it so they could loot it. Now it's about one-third of its original size, and still it's the largest pyramid in Peru. There were dozens of Moche pyramids built in the valleys of the north coast. Maybe hundreds if you count the small ones, too. It's hard to find that number because most of them have never been touched by archaeologists, just looters. And why did the looters care? Because those pyramids held the tombs of rich rulers, full of gold, silver, and beautiful ceramics. The archaeological world was turned on its head in 1987 when the royal Moche tombs of Sipan were discovered. 
they're still the richest tombs ever found in all of the Americas. To this date, 18 tombs have been found at Sipan, complete with thousands of ceramics, amazing works of gold and silver, and many sacrificial attendants who went to the other world with their lords. Now, I'm not an expert in metallurgy, but anyone who sees the Sipan collection knows that they're world-class pieces of art. I've read that at the time, about 450 CE, they were the most sophisticated metal artworks on the planet. The pyramids and the amazing art alone make archaeologists take notice. But they also developed extensive irrigation systems, filling their valleys with corn and other crops. The other thing that fascinates people about the moche, though, is how utterly violent they were. Their art is full of battle scenes. Their tombs are full of weapons and armor, and their plazas cover vast graveyards of murdered and or sacrificed bodies. Young women in their teens and twenties were sacrificed by strangulation and buried as offerings under the pyramids. Finding a group of 50 to 100 sacrificed women is macabrely common. Is macabrely a word? Uh, well, I said it. There are so many depictions of the Fang deity holding tumi knives and severed heads that many publications refer to him as the Decapitator God. And piles of severed skulls found prove that it wasn't just symbolic. People were actually losing their heads. Now, for me, it's always been the ceramic art that draws me to the moche. Its subject matter is so rich, and the sheer amount of pots we have is astounding. Between collections in Lima, Trujillo, and Chiclayo, I've personally put my eyes on tens of thousands of moche ceramics, and that's just what I've seen. Attitudes are changing in modern times, but for decades, going out into the desert and digging up moche pottery was a local pastime. When you stand on the top of a typical moche pyramid, the desert looks like the surface of the moon, full of craters. Every hole is where a looter's dug. Going out with friends or family to dig for pots, well, that used to just be a fun Sunday. In fact, the first person to intensively study moche pottery was a sugarcane plantation owner named Rafael Larco Hoyle. In the 1930s, his farm workers would come across pottery daily. He started buying them off the farmers for a buck or two for every intact pot. Over 30,000 of those pots are on display at the Larco Herrera Museum in Lima today. Larco Herrera was his son who inherited the collection. The majority of those moche pots are the kind we call stirrup vessels, with that distinct spout that looks like a horse saddle stirrup. The bottoms of those pots are globular and often painted with elaborate scenes of moche life. A lot of them show battle scenes, but others show people fishing or farming or scenes of people doing things under the pyramids. Many, many of them depict the Fang deity. Larco Hoyle was the first to refer to moche religion as the feline cult because he saw so many of them in the vessels he collected. There's also a vast quantity of those stirrup vessels that we refer to as portrait vessels. 
On the globular part, instead of painted scenes, are fully figured human heads, kind of like Greek and Roman busts. They're expertly crafted. When you look at one, you know it's not just a generic human head, but an actual portrait of an individual. I mention those portrait vessels because they're actually part of my Fang Deity theory, and I'll get back to those in a little bit. When I started looking at these moche art scenes, like I explained in my last podcast, I was looking very specifically for evidence of shamanism. Noting the jaguar elements I saw in the repeated images of the Fang Deity in Shavin and Paracas art, I looked into ethnographies about Amazonian shamanism and culture. I learned about creator deities whose emissaries on earth are jaguars. I learned about shamans who took hallucinogenic drugs to contact spirits and turn into jaguars. And I learned about how headhunting was all about controlling the spirit world. It explained a lot, and it applied to the moche imagery as well. But the moche imagery subject matter was so much more diverse, and the Amazonian connections didn't explain everything. So that's when I started looking into ethnographies on the North Coast, both from the Contact Period Chronicles and more recent studies. What I found was very strong traditions of brujaria and curanderismo. In English, that's witches and healers. Healers, obviously, were good guys. They tried to heal people who were suffering spiritual attack. Remember, in all of the pre-Columbian Americas, illness had a spiritual cause, not a physical one. Brujos, or witches, used the same power as the coranderos, but for bad. It could be used to hurt someone, or perhaps just to selfishly enrich oneself. Both witches and healers did the same thing to ply their craft. They drank a brew of hallucinogenic San Pedro cactus juice. Often their patients and families drank it too. Together, they would call down the attacking spirits and fight them off. And this didn't just happen in the ancient past. This is happening today in Trujillo and other towns along the north coast. Well, okay, I'll take my first commercial break here, and when I return, I'll tell you how we can see the customs of modern moche coranderos in ancient moche pottery scenes. Listeners of this podcast are probably most familiar with the Mayan population during their monumental building eras. Of course, the Mayan people are still with us. Many of them live in isolated locations in the interior of Guatemala. Separated by economic and linguistic factors, they have little access to medical and surgical resources. Smiles for Guatemala consists of medical volunteers from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, assisted by non-medical volunteers, primarily Rotarians, from the Philadelphia region. The team travels to Guatemala on a regular basis to perform free, life-changing surgeries for facial and hand anomalies. For information on how you can contribute to future missions, please go to smilesforguatemala.org. 
This message is sponsored by a friend of Smiles for Guatemala. Did you know that family travel has the incredible power to shape our children's worldview and create lasting memories? In a world where representation is often lacking, it's essential for our children to see themselves reflected in every aspect of life, including the stories we tell about travel. Introducing the Travel of Legacy podcast, where we're rewriting the script by celebrating the diverse voices of black and brown family travelers. Each episode of Travel of Legacy is a testament to the enriching power and the joy of exploration in black and brown communities. So journey with us and subscribe now. And I'm back. Let's talk about what I learned about moche brujos and coranderos. I read a lot of ethnographies from all over Peru and the Amazon, but two in particular had gems of enlightenment. One was John Gillen's 1945 Smithsonian monograph called Moche, a Peruvian Coastal Community. It had a long section about brujos and coranderos around the little town of Moche, just south of Trujillo and suggested a whole separate tome should be written about the subject. Sadly, Gillen was a generation late to learn the language called Moshika. It was first documented with a dictionary by the Spanish in 1607, but it died out about 1920. And I imagine a lot of cultural traditions ceased about that same time. Now the other book, the one that really blew my mind, was Wizard of the Four Winds, written by Douglas Sharon in 1978. Sharon was an anthropologist from UCLA who had lived for four years with the Trujillo Corandero named Eduardo Calderon. They met in the late 60s at the archaeological site of Chan Chan, where Calderon was working as just a regular excavator for the archaeologists there. Sharon became Calderon's apprentice, and he participated in many healing ceremonies centered around a mobile altar called a Mesa de Brujo. Very much mirroring what Gillen had witnessed 30 years earlier, healing ceremonies took place around these Mesas de Brujo. The Mesa itself was just a tablecloth, either laid on the ground or draped over a small table. On the table itself were a variety of things. Candles, animal bones, shells, gemstones, plants, and artifacts. All of the objects, but especially the artifacts, were things that could call the spirits down. In front of the table were swords and knives stuck into the ground, making a kind of fence in front of the mesa. The most important element was a bucket of San Pedro cactus brew placed next to the mesa. The corandero used a cup to dip into the bucket, drinking the hallucinogenic brew and sharing it with participants during the ceremony. These ceremonies are never conducted alone. The corandero has assistance and, depending on the circumstances, will also ask the family to participate. The goal is to call in spirits, both the malevolent ones attacking the patient and the corandero's own posse of spirits to help him fight them. 
They drink the San Pedro brew together and begin chanting, often singing and sometimes playing flutes. For certain ceremonies, the assistants will be a few women who sing the songs like a chorus. When the spirits appear, the San Pedro helps the Corandero see them. They're often described as little floating figures, and they brandish weapons. The Corandero commands them to leave the patient alone and sends his own spirit helpers after them. If that doesn't work, he picks up a knife and swipes at them, waving it aggressively in the air. Those spirits are called Shapingos, and it's interesting to note that there's an Amazonian tribe who call themselves Shapingo. Is there a connection? The kind of Amazonian influence on the coast that I've been theorizing? Well, you can guess what I think. By the way, after I wrote that first paper for Sheely in the spring of 1994, I wrote a follow-up paper that fall for Richard Shadell's anthropology class. The title was Mesas de Brujo of Northern Coastal Peru, Modern Forms, Ancient Precedents. Shadell was very near retirement at that point, and a legend in South American archaeology. He had helped start entire university anthropology departments in Peru. For mostly good old boy reasons, he hated Linda Sheely, and by proxy, he didn't like me. More than once in his class, he told me to shut up about my art historical nonsense, and he did not like my Mesa de Brujo paper. He gave it a B, which in grad school is basically a bitch slap. I've got that paper posted on Mech's website, and just for fun, I'm going to scan the version with his written comments so you can see all his nasty words. I'll put that in the show notes of this episode. But back to the Mesa ceremonies. People would come to Coranderos for many reasons. They could have a bad cold or an infection, but also more magical things, like susto, a sickness caused by being badly scared. One particular ailment that caught my interest was people who went insane. They would run around like crazy, sometimes strip their clothes off, and try to attack people. Their families would restrain them, tying them up with ropes to haul them to the coranderos. Sharon and Calderon saw a boy in this condition being brought to a famous corandero on their visit to the lakes at Las Huaringas. Las Huaringas are sacred lagoons high up in the mountains. Coranderos would occasionally journey up there to collect medicinal plants. Like Chavin de Huantar, the area also had an easy route down into the Amazon. In pre-Columbian times, tropical birds and other Amazonian products were traded through there. When the Inca took over management, they put a big sun temple and an akawasi, or chosen women's cloister, there. Down on the coast, brujaria was outlawed, and police would break up any mesa ceremony they could find. But up at Las Huarengas, coranderos were more free to practice their craft. The famous corandero that Sharon and Calderon visited, a man named Don Florentino, did his work in a permanent compound. It was a house with a fenced yard. The fence was made of swords, just like the Mesa de Brujo's perimeter. And the house's roof also had knives and swords sticking out of it. 
He performed his ceremonies inside the house, and he could attend multiple patients at once. Here I'm reminded to give proper credit to the brilliant work of Marlene Dobkinde Rios. Starting in the 1960s, she dedicated over 30 years of her life to studying shamanic use of hallucinogenics in Peru and in the Amazon. Her work was the first I had ever read actually connecting modern moche corinderismo to the images on ancient moche pottery. In fact, she and I are still the only people I know talking about it. Does that make me crazy? Well, I can't rule out that possibility. She witnessed ceremonies at Las Waringas and other places, calling the healing houses tombos, the Inca word for rest houses. Then she noted that similar structures were depicted on ancient moche pottery, complete with people holding cups inside and the weapons sticking out of their roofs. And then she noticed a repeated scene in moche pottery showing naked people being carried or led by ropes to those tombos. The people leading them were usually dressed as warriors, prompting archaeologists to interpret them as disgraced captives. Dobkinde Rios disagreed, suggesting that they were insane people being brought for healing. She cited their short haircuts and weird looks on their faces as evidence of their insanity. I took a look at those same images and noticed some odd things myself. For one, in some of those scenes, the naked people are leading the warriors holding the ropes. Captives are dragged, not followed to their demise. In another image, anthropomorphic bird creatures were holding their hands and giving them bowls. They were caring for them, not punishing them. Shadell took particular issue with my interpretation on that one. And most exciting to me, the people in the tombos with the cups had the face of the fang deity and that headband with the little feline face on the front. The modern Coranderos said nothing about the fang deity, but they wouldn't. By the 1900s, they were all Christians, but that didn't stop them from doing mesa ceremonies, did it? This epiphany, inspired by Dobkinde Rios, got me looking through all of the moche imagery with now an eye for corinderismo. And the more I looked, the more I found it. And wherever I found it, the fang deity was there too. Okay, this is the right moment for my final commercial break. When I return, I'll explain those connections. And I'll get to the sex and puppies part. The ancient Maya calendar. I'm fascinated by it. And though I've been studying it for decades, I still learn new things about it all the time. I call it ancient, but I and literally millions of modern Maya people are still tracking it into modern time. Towards that end, I've created two products to help people better understand it. My annual Maya wall calendar and an iPhone app called simply Maya Calendar. Through these tools, you can figure out today's date, or tomorrow's, or a Maya date thousands of years in the past. The app will even calculate your Maya birthday and tell you about your personality traits and destiny according to modern Maya daykeeper priests. 
The Maya Calendar app is available through iTunes, but both it and my annual Maya Wall Calendar are available through my website, mayan-calendar.com. That's mayan with an n-calendar.com. Check it out. And I'm back. Now let's see if I can boil down years of research into this final block of this episode. Okay, equipped with both modern moche and Amazonian ethnographies, and inspired by Dobkin de Rios's rock-solid connections between modern coranderos and ancient moche pottery, I looked for more patterns from the corpus of moche art. Recall that at the time I was also looking at the art from other Andean civilizations, especially Chavin, Paracas, and Tiwanaku. Like a spiderweb uses all of its strands to create a strong whole, the individual elements of Andean art can do the same. Dobkin de Rios had pointed out that images of uprooted San Pedro cactus and another hallucinogen called Misha were commonly in the healing scenes. In a culture without writing, elements like that communicate the message. In those cases, hey, this guy is using hallucinogens. So one of the first things I looked for was uprooted plants, and I discovered them in all sorts of contexts. There's a whole theme of scenes with uprooted plants that include people playing flutes and looking up into the sky with their mouths open. My guess is they're singing along with the flutes. In those same scenes, other people drink from cups or use a dipping stick to ingest a substance in a vase-like vessel. And they're often wearing a headband with a jaguar face protruding from the front. So in the scenes of that theme, we have music, people in jaguar headdresses imbibing substances, and uprooted hallucinogenic plants. Sure looks like Coranderi's Motomi. Another place where we find uprooted plants is in a theme called the Runners. I've seen dozens of moche pots painted with this scene. Each is slightly different from the next, but they all show groups of men running through hills, holding little pouches in front of them. Floating between the Runners are uprooted plants, often Dobkin de Rios's Misha, but also things like lima beans, manioc, and things I don't recognize. Some scholars want to identify them as Chaskis, Inca message runners, but I see the coranderos that Sharon talked about going up into the mountains for special plants. Supporting that thought is the fact that many of the runners wear the jaguar headband. Their faces are also often animals, or the fang deity. Another place where I found uprooted plants is battle scenes. The moche made tons of these. Multiple people running at each other, dressed in armor and equipped with maces or spears. But then sometimes, really more often than not, there are one or two people without weapons. Uprooted plants float nearby, and they often stand near or on pyramids. And those guys always have something else. Yes, the jaguar headband, but also little floating figures over their heads who brandish weapons. 
Are those the spirits that modern moche brujos can call down to help them fight? Once I noticed those floating figures, I recognized them in all sorts of contexts, and virtually always and only with people wearing the jaguar headband. The more I looked, the more I realized that the Corandero clues, like cups, uprooted plants, and now floating spirits, were all associated with people wearing that jaguar headband. So let's follow that thread. What are the guys with that headband doing? One simple place to look is the portrait vessels. The Largo Herrera Museum has hundreds of them on display. Looking through those, there's a significant amount wearing the jaguar headband. Most of them are humans, but some of them have the face of the fang deity. And every time it's the fang deity, he's wearing that headdress. One of the main exhibits show a face split down the middle, half human and half fang deity. There's also a Chavine portrait vessel that's half human, half fang deity. That made it clear to me. Humans are either turning into or perhaps channeling the fang deity. The guy with the jaguar headdress is connected to, and I think logically worshipping, the fang deity. Those portrait vessels are always stirrup vessels, with the stirrup attached to the top of their heads. I got to thinking, why that stirrup form? Most early ceramic vessels have a pre-ceramic precedent. A bowl is half a gourd. A round bottom jar with a neck is a hollow gourd with its neck. What form is the stirrup vessel inspired by? It dawned on me that they look like the severed heads with the rope inserted at the top of their skulls. The Amazonian tribes see their severed heads as vessels holding spiritual power. Severed heads are all over the Paracas textiles, hanging by ropes held by guys with the fang deity's face. That all leads back to the Moche decapitator god. He holds a tumi knife and a severed head, often dangling from a rope handle. And the decapitator is clearly the fang deity. Following the basic art-historical methods of the principle of substitution, I think the stirrup vessels, especially the portrait vessels, are ceramic versions of severed heads. So the fang deity is definitely coming through humans wearing jaguar headbands. But looking through the wider corpus of Moche art, his face is on all sorts of things. Crabs, spiders, fish, even corn. Those are the images that led early researchers to believe that there's a Moche pantheon of gods. Deities like the crab god, the fox god, the shark god, the spider deity. But if they're different deities, why do they always have the same face? those goggle eyes and fangs? Why do they often have snakes coming off them? Or tumi knives? To me, it's clear. It's the fang deity manifesting through all things because he's the creator deity. Now, before I get too far into my time, let's talk about sex and puppies. Moche pottery is famous for its depictions of sex, there are hundreds of very sexually explicit scenes. 
The Larco Herrera Museum hides them in a separate room so kids can't see them. I'm not the first to notice that none of it is procreational sex. It's all anal and fellatio. And the moche went to amusing lengths to make sure we see that. I may well be the first to notice that most of those sex acts involve the priests of the fang deity. In many, many of the images, the male is wearing a headdress or the jaguar headband. And really, who wears a hat to have sex? Noticing my guys so involved in the sexual pottery, it reminded me of things I had read in ethnographies. The Kalina in the Amazon say that shaman's power or yellow purpose is in his semen. Both the Konibo and the Warao have a kind of gross practice in which an apprentice swallows the tobacco phlegm from his master to be imbued with his power. Then most enlightening are the chronicles that talk about healers in the North Coast area in the 1600s. They say that they're elite members of society and well-respected. Spanish priests explained with disgust that these healers regularly had sex with their patients, claiming their semen had power. And there it is. Those sex scenes are actually healing scenes. One of the most common themes within the sexual pottery shows a man on top of a woman in a house. The man wears the jaguar headband, and sometimes it's not a man, it's the fang deity. Maybe he's just like Zeus, getting some. But I think it's his power coming through in a sexual healing ceremony. When I was looking at all those house sex scenes, I noticed a funny thing. There's a puppy outside scratching at the door. Not a dog, a puppy. Then, funny enough, I found him frequently jumping around at the feet of the fang deity. In one, he's chasing his tail. The artist wants us to view him as cute. And then I found him having anal sex with a woman. So, okay, he's definitely part of this. Amusingly, the fearsome fang deity appears to have a cute little puppy friend. Now, with all of that explained, let me once again challenge the world's leading expert in moche studies, Dr. Christopher Donnan of UCLA. His most famous theory regarding moche pottery is called the presentation ceremony. It's about another of the repeated scenes, one in which richly costumed individuals pass cups to one another, hence presentation. There are multiple examples of this scene, and Donnan named the primary players persons A, B, C, and D. And so far that's all fine by me. It's what he says is in the cup that bothers me. He thinks it's the blood of decapitated, sacrificed victims. What? Why are they drinking blood? Are there any scenes of blood going into cups? No. Have we found any cups archaeologically with blood residue inside? No. Do we have any ethnography examples of moche people drinking out of cups? Yes. And it's San Pedro cactus brew, not blood. 
and vampire movies aside, you can't practically drink blood. It coagulates very quickly. When the tombs of Sipan were found in 1987, Donan was part of the team. The regalia found on the bodies was very like Donan's figures A, B, and D. That made many people believe his interpretation of the presentation ceremony was true, including the blood-drinking part. I first balked at this in 1994, and I even sent him a letter saying so. But to this day, most everyone believes Donan, including the many descendants of the Moche in Peru. That's what they believe their ancestors did because Donan told them so. But when I look at this scene, I see a different story. Figure A is holding the cup. His face is the fang deity. Figure B has a bird face, and he's reaching for the cup. Figure D is on the right, in a jaguar headband, holding his hands together, and with his mouth open, pointing up towards the sky. Behind him is a floating little figure with weapons. There's another floating little figure behind figure A. It also has weapons in its hand. Yes, on the lower register are two people getting their necks chopped, but no cup anywhere near. And funny enough, who's at figure A's feet? The puppy. Maybe the puppy's thirsty for blood, too. No. Donnan's blood-drinking theory is wrong. The scene is a San Pedro brew drinking ceremony conducted by priests and healers who worship their creator deity, the Fang deity. Here I am over my time again, but I have to finish this with the story of my first trip to the Moche temples, back about a decade ago. I climbed up the Pyramid of the Moon at Moche with my wife Cassandra and our baby Alice strapped to her back. On top were temples that had been excavated to reveal brilliantly colored facades with one central image repeating over and over, a diamond shape with the face of the fang deity inside, hundreds repeating all over the temple. It was on this trip that I first learned that the living Moche remember his name. They call him Iapek. Coming down the other side, I was amazed to see six terraces all decorated with scenes. Captives, spiders, jaguars, warriors, each grouped by terrace. In the plaza was a colorful little house with maces lining its roof, just like Dobkin de Rios's Cordero Tombos. Two days later, we drove two hours north to another Moche temple called Waka del Brujo, or Waka Cal Viejo. I was surprised and thrilled to find its terraces and facades were almost identical to those at Moche, especially the repeated images of the Fang deity's face. As I was admiring the little house with the maces on the roof, a guard approached me and he told me the story about how the Moche drank blood. I told him that I didn't believe that and explained how I thought it was San Pedro cactus brew. I asked him, Aren't there still coranderos in your community that use the Mesa de Brujo in San Pedro? And he replied, Yes, I'm actually a corandero. I just took this job to be close to the temples of my ancestors. 
he agreed that my theory made sense to him, and I left him standing there, deep in thought. Frankly, I'm pissed that Donnan's theory has irresponsibly made modern Moche, like that man, think that their ancestors were literally bloodthirsty savages. And further, I think flaky, wrong theories about ancient Andean religion pervade the literature. Sheely told me not to say it back in 1994, but I'm more convinced than ever. The ancient religion of South America was monotheistic. The Fang deity, or Iayapek to the Moche, was the creator deity who made all things, including a collection of supernaturals that have been misunderstood as deities in their own right. Well, all right, how's that for a rant? I'm going to wrap this episode up here, but I'm especially interested in your thoughts and comments on this one. Please let me know what you think. Until next month, this is Ed, signing off. You've been listening to Archeo Ed, a podcast written, produced, and distributed by me, Ed Barnhart. If you liked what you heard, then subscribe, like, share, comment, and do all those other things that I'm supposed to ask you to do. If you didn't, then don't do any of that stuff. And if you really liked it, support ArcheoEd through my Patreon account. I make these podcasts for free, but I am not opposed to financial support. Until next time, thanks for listening. All rights reserved. Copyright 2020.